Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. show can be both killer and family friendly it's episode 315 of the down and nerdy podcast i'm james with and the only way that we can make that happen is by bringing on a guy like patrick megan that's right you might remember him as one of the writers and executive producers on family guy he also has a brand new comic that's out called she kills that is super super intense really really interesting can't wait to dive in to that with him and so much more. It's going to be such a fun conversation. I cannot wait. It's also another double review week on the podcast this week. Going to dive into Hulu's Solar Opposites, the brand new adult animated series that's coming to Hulu. And I'll do that spoiler free since it just came out. Also going to do the same thing with the final season premiere of Blind Spot, another spoiler-free review. Again, just came out. If you've got it sitting on your DVR or, or on Hulu, don't worry, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but it is time to make some comics talk happen. It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is comic book writer Jackson Landon, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It is so nice to be able to say that we might be able to start dragging out the long boxes again. You can still fire up your laptop or your tablet, too. Whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading. And DC's actually been releasing stuff on Tuesday lately, which is kind of interesting. And one of the Tuesday releases was a character that you know that I love if you're a regular listener to the show. It's Hawkman. So let's talk about Hawkman number 23 from DC Comics and Robert Venditti on the writing here. Markio Takara on the pencils and the inks, by the way. Pencil assist by Fernando Pasarin, Pasarin excuse me, there, and Eau Claire Albert. Helping out on the inks as well. Jeremy Cox on the colors. Rob Lee on the letters. And Mikkel Jenin on the cover. Now, what you'll see right away in this story is kind of a literal fallout, you might say, from Hawkman's evil transformation into Sky Tyrant. If you haven't already been reading Hawkman, that's kind of been what's been going on. So you see that, and then we, we are kind of transformed to the 17th century in Spain. And ironically enough, and maybe this is a minor spoiler, so I'll give you a minor spoiler alert for this just in case. I mean, the book's been out for a while, but still, I want to make sure that, just in case you haven't read it, there is a plague in Spain. And what we're seeing is, is we're seeing Carter go around and almost take inventory of those who have the plague. And it's it's just very interesting in the, in the time that we're in, we're in right now, seeing him go to these people's homes and basically try to figure out what's going on and what's basically what's killing these people. And then what was also interesting was the people's reaction to his presence, you know, not, not knowing that who he is exactly, but what he's doing and what the situation is doing to this group of people. It was just a very interesting narrative to follow and this this issue I'm going to guess was probably written way before we were dealing with any of this coronavirus stuff but it's just it was just very interesting to see how a plague and how something like this can affect people and how basically you know fear can change who you are if you let it it was a very interesting underlying theme of this issue and then ultimately what we get to see at the end is is that that that's a story that we see was almost a means to an end of the larger story of Haw- of Hawkman. And there was a reason that this was actually important. We get to see some of the 17th century story, but at the same time, there was something else going on. There was a reason why that was important. And it's a good thing. That's that's that much. I can tell you it, it's ultimately a good thing. And it, it kind of is a little bit of a tease for what's going to be coming up in future issues. One of the things I always love about Hawkman books, especially if you've got a good art team, which this one does, is that there are so many beautiful art moments 
in Hawkman books, it, it seems like. Even in the even in what seems like the simplest of settings, which you know is somewhat of a simple setting in this book, at least in the in the meat of it anyway. It it was it was simple, but it was just drawn so beautifully well. Especially there were times where there was a certain costume that was there that was done so so well. And the the exteriors when they were in Spain, I thought were very very cool and very very you know period specific, which is which was very nice. So I it, Hawkman is just one of those books that I'm going to keep up with because I love the character. But it's one of those books too where you could jump in every now and then. And you'd be okay. I'm I'm saying you should be reading every issue, but if you if you got behind a little bit, you could jump in. I feel like at a certain point and be all right. And I feel like this would be a really good jumping in point if you've been kind of missing a few issues of Hawkman. This would be a good place to jump in before you can catch up on some of your back issues. So go ahead and grab this one if you're heading out to your curbside pickup for your local comic book shop, or if one's going to be open near you, make sure you're grabbing this one. Here's one that we're going to be getting. From Oni Press and Cullen Bunn. That's right, Rogue Planet number one from Cullen Bunn, illustrated by Andy McDonald, Nick Filardi on the colors, and Crank doing the letters for this one. And this this one starts out pretty graphic, I would say, is the best way that I could that I could possibly put it. I mean, we're, we're kind of it's an outer space story. That much I could tell you. So so you're dealing with aliens and you're dealing with with human beings as well, and obviously to some advanced technology in both. That much I can tell you for sure. But the, but we get to see some of the alien part of the story and we get to see some of the human part of the story. And we, and when you see the aliens, it's like, whoa, 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 what just happened? And that's one of the things I love about Cullen Bond's stories is that at least once in a book, I'm, I'm looking at, at, at some point in the story and going, what just happened? Did did that really just happen? And what? Why? Why did you do that? Why did that happen? And and not in a bad way, by the way. I'm not saying that in a bad way. It's just it makes you think. It makes you wonder. It makes you, you know, your eyes pop. It makes you go, oh well. Now I really need to pay attention. If I wasn't paying attention before, I certainly am now. It it's it's an attention grabber, and we get one very very early. But then we also go back to the human element of the story. And you've got a crew that's basically looking for sal. It's like a not necessarily a salvage crew, but you're just trying to get trying to get your payload. You're just trying to get paid, right? So you've got your typical crew that you would see in a story like this, and you've got you know the captain who's Joel Norris, who's kind of a dick, quite frankly. I mean, I don't really know how else to describe him. But then you've got you know some lighthearted members of the crew. You've got some. Some that have obviously been there for a while and, you know, they swear it's the last time that they're going to be going out in the field and things like that. I mean, there's just various, you know, team dynamic sort of things here. Nothing that really jumps out as you as unusual. But the planet that they're going to where they received a signal from, it, it was a very interesting setting, to say the least. And then what they end up finding there, obviously, 100% more than what they bargained for. And when you see this, this is like, you see something like this and you go, how would how does someone's mind conjure this up? And that's another thing you'll get from Cullen Bun books. It's like, how, how on earth could you have possibly thought of and come up with that? And it, it's just creepy. It's weird. I've said Cullen Bun's the king of creepy many, many times on this show. Does it very, very well. And how... Different members of the crew react to what they see and what they've experienced is very, very interesting and, and might make you upset in certain instances and might make you rally towards one person or the other. I'm just saying that not everything is cut and dry in this book as far as and, and it's almost like, a, hey, you know, what would you do in this situation given all the factors? I know what I would do. It's pretty easy for me, but what would you do? And you'll you'll you know probably ask yourself that, and I think you know the answer will probably be pretty obvious. But hey, I mean you never know. Maybe you're braver than I am. Who knows? But the the art was also very very good in this book as well, especially on this. I guess you could call this the Rogue Planet. But those first few pages, while they were there was a shocking moment in those first few pages. Just the, I mean, intricate detail on these alien beings was so, so good. And and I was locked in 
on those first few pages just based on the art alone. And I can't wait to see more. And I hope we do see more of these aliens and what the hell they were doing in the beginning of this book. Because, you know, I kind of need answers now. And hopefully we do get those. So, I mean, while there were some very, very ordinary parts to this story and there was there was a lot of things that were typical about the crew, you kind of were barely scratching the surface of this group of people that we've kind of just met. So why we while we get a, a you know really quick impression of their personalities, we really don't have enough to draw on to make a really good conclusion as to all of the aspects of these characters. So I mean I'm interested. Count me in. I want more Rogue Planet in my life, so make sure you're asking your local comic book shop about that when you get there as well. That's going to do it for what we're reading. Up next, we're going to start part one of a double review week on the podcast this week. Speaking of aliens, we'll talk Solar Opposites next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Kari Walgren, the voice of Haruko in FLCO, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Talk about crashing your neighborhood. That's right. It is Hulu's Solar Opposites, the adult animated series that just premiered today. So again, I'm going to give a spoiler-free review of this first episode, my general general impressions of the series overall. It just came out. I mean, maybe you've already binge-watched it. If you have, hey, good for you. Or, or if you're listening to this after Friday, of course, maybe you've already watched a bunch of the episodes. But I don't want to spoil it for anybody that might not have seen it. So here's my spoiler-free review of Solar Opposites. Basically, it is a family that, whose planet was, you know, getting ready to explode. So there, several members of their species actually fled their planet. This group just happened to crash on Earth. And you're talking about Corvo, Terry, Yumulak, Jesse, and the pupa. Yes, the pupa, which is kind of like the baby. If you want to call, basically that is what the pupa is. And we don't really get to see like day one of them crashing on Earth, which I think is interesting. And this isn't really, none of what I'm going to say is a major spoiler, okay? But I I do have to set the stage for you. You know, you kind of get to see the quote-unquote origin story where you get to see, you know, what happens with them crashing on Earth and everything. But what what you're getting is, is that you're getting this family at a point where they've already been on Earth for a little bit. So it's not like we're starting from day one and they're like discovering everything and all that. So you're skipping past that entirely. And quite frankly, I'm glad that they did that because I I feel like if you do that, if you do like the day one experience, it's a been there, done that kind of thing, isn't it? On a lot of different shows, no matter what the tone, no matter you know, what you're doing. It just seems like we've done that kind of thing already, right? So now we're seeing them basically continuing to try to integrate themselves into society or not. You get to see how Jesse and Yumilak, who are the younger two, they, they see how they get to be treated in school and you get to see maybe them. And this is kind of, this is in the trailer, so this isn't really a spoiler. You get to see them get, you know, bullied a little bit, but it's it's the way that they take it that's really, really interesting and the angle that they take and something that they do, especially in this first episode, that's very, very interesting. So yeah, it's, there's definitely a lot of humor in that, but to me, the, the most humor in this episode is the interaction between Corvo and Terry because Corvo, to me, the two of them, it seems like the polar opposite sides of fandoms, right? where you've got Corvo, who is kind of the, I hate everything, I hate everyone, basically. This planet sucks, and I want to get off of it immediately. And then you've got Terry, who loves almost everything about the planet, and wants to stay, and thinks everything's great, and thinks Terry's just being a grouch kind of thing. So it's almost like listening to fans argue with each other about like Star Wars or something like that. You know, it's just just very interesting dynamic between the two of them, and I really, really dig it a whole lot. And this, there's a lot of that in this first episode, actually. And you saw a character named Fun Bucket in the trailer, and that comes into play in this first episode. And there's something about Fun Bucket that changes the dynamic of the group a little bit. Well, more than a little bit, really, but that's kind of where things sort of kick off 
right? That's what kind of I think is going to, this particular thing is going to set the tone for the series going forward, what happens with Fun Bucket. Now, I can't tell you anything else beyond that about what happens in the first episode. Just know that there, there, there's plenty of hijinks. There's plenty of stuff that, you know, doesn't necessarily go according to plan. But, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an, it's an adult animated series. This kind of stuff is going to happen. You, you, may, you want to call it a sitcom? Fine. It's, it's definitely, you know, there, there's some strong language in there. There's some, there's some gory, nasty stuff. That happens as well, if you if you want to call it that. But some of my most, some of the humor that, that was the most for me, other than the stuff between, just the interaction between Corvo and Terry in general. And when you're watching this first episode, I want you to watch the pupa. Anytime the pupa is on the screen, anytime you get the baby on the screen, watch. Just listen to what's being said by everybody else, but watch the pupa on the screen in the story because there was so much, and I'm glad that, that I caught that. So I was laughing so hard at one particular point. And if once you get there, you'll probably be like, Oh, that I know that's gotta be what he was talking about. I was laughing so hard and it wasn't even a main focus of the scene or the story. It was just happening in the background and it was so, so funny. And you get to see how the humans react to and treat this entire group. Basically, mostly the kids, but kind of this entire group. And, you know, when certain things happen, you kind of understand why Corvo might feel the way he does or even why Terry might feel the way he does. But there's something that happens to the two of them a little bit more than halfway through the episode that was also really, really funny and and a great take on an emotional response is the best way that I could put it. It's, It's not something that you've seen every day. So that this show definitely had its moments. I wouldn't say it was perfect. I wouldn't say it was hilarious, but it absolutely had its moments. Again, I enjoyed the stuff with Corvo and Terry more than I did with the kids, Jesse and Yumulak. I think that they'll certainly have their moments in other episodes as well, but I have to get, I have to see them get past the whole school thing. I, there has to be more depth added to them and, you know, that's kind of heavy-handed because they're, they're kid characters and how much depth can you really add? And you're, I'm sure there's going to be more about Corvo and Terry. But how their dynamic changes and how their feelings about the planet might change as these episode goes, episodes go forward, not only could it add humor, but could it add some really interesting conflict into the show. So I'm definitely interested in continuing to watch Solar Opposites. Again, I think it's going to be one of those hit-or-miss shows for me. I, I'm sure that there's going to be moments that I like and that I don't like. I mean, one of my one of my knocks on a show like South Park was that, you know, this, you're starting to do too much, you know, nasty, gory stuff at times. And you certainly see that in the first episode of Solar Opposites, but it doesn't take you out of the story. It's actually, you know, there's a good reason that they're doing it. It's just, you know, you, you crank it up a notch at some point. So go ahead, if you haven't had a chance to yet, watch at least the first episode of Solar Opposites on on Hulu Hulu it's done by the same guys that were part of Rick and Morty you've got Justin Roiland and and Mike McMahon that were part of Rick and Morty if you're a Rick and Morty fan you'll probably like Solar Opposites as well give it a shot and let me know what you think it's going to do it for my spoiler free review of Solar Opposites from Hulu up next how about we talk about a little blind spot that's right who survived can't tell you but I will give my spoiler free review of the season five premiere next on the down and nerdy podcast this is Audrey Spotify from Blind Spot on NBC, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. The time of the tattoos are coming to an end, and the end has begun, you might say. So here's my spoiler-free review of the season five and final season premiere of Blind Spot on NBC. Now, I say spoiler-free, but there's going to have to be a couple of things that I'm going to have to tell you in order to talk about this episode, but I won't spoil it fully so maybe a couple of minor spoilers ahead especially if you're not caught up I mean you have to be caught up because you have to already know about the season four finale cliffhanger okay so that that's going to be right off the bat what I'm going to talk about now again this is going to be difficult because I absolutely don't want to spoil a certain aspect of that you you know what happened to the season four finale you know that there was the drone strike ordered 
and Madeline blew up the shack that they were hi- that that the team was hiding in. You know that Jane was the only one that was outside, right? So you know that Jane survives, but does anyone else survive? So what I can tell you is is that you will find out that answer and you might not like it fully. Okay? So that much I can tell you. I really, really don't want to go too much further than that when it comes to revealing who may or may not have survived, if anyone. So I want you to have that same reaction that I did watching it for the first time, but just prepare yourself. That's all I'm going to tell you because if you you had guesses after the season four finale, I'm curious to see if your guesses were right. But there is more to the story in that, you know, still back at FBI headquarters, if you thought everything was going Madeline's way before, boy, wait until you see this episode. And you are not going to be happy about that either. It's just quickly, it's interesting how quickly the tide turned at the end of season four and how brilliant the plan actually was as much as I really, really hate to say that. But there's also a couple of mysterious things happening back in the States and and a signal that is sent out. And again, nothing I could spoil for you there, but let's just say that, that, that there's a signal that gets sent out and you have to see, and the mystery is going to be who is it exactly that's sending out this signal. And it's funny because... Again, we know that Jane's alive, so I can tell you that much. And we know that there's somebody else from the team that is alive as well. And there might be an opportunity to try and rescue this person. I, again, all I can say on that. And, and I will tell you this, there are allies in the FBI still when it comes to Jane. And you might be surprised and who it is, and you might not be. Let's just say that there's something that happens in the season four finale that seemed kind of, you know, non-sequential at the time, but you'll find out that that quick little scene towards the end actually meant something and might have actually been a major, major factor in what's going to happen this season, especially in this first episode. Okay, I know that that's really cryptic. I'm sorry. I I don't really don't want to spoil this episode. And there's, and if I even say the tiniest little bit, it's going to spoil stuff. And maybe you're listening to this on a Wednesday, saying, "Come on, you know, episode two is about to air. You still haven't told me what's going on in episode one." I will say this: you'll be happy about some things. You'll be very unhappy about other things. There's also a guest character that has been a recurring guest, especially recently, on the show that will be coming back and will play an interesting role in a potential rescue mission. It's just, This is a character that you either love or, or hate or love to hate, but it's it just the, the charisma there from that character, you can't deny the entertainment value. I'm sorry. It's, just, it's one of those characters, I mean, I hate this character too, but at the same time, this person is very charismatic and has a long history with Jane specifically. So I, I no, it's not, it's not that person. Okay. The first name that popped into your head, probably not that person, but you will, you'll, you'll be, you'll go, Oh, I can't believe that they've got to work with this person. That's all I'm saying. Okay. Is that once you see the guest star, you'll know exactly who it is. You'll remember everything about them and then you'll go from there. But see, Madeline's still paranoid. Even though she's got the upper hand, going back to the FBI side of this, she's still paranoid. So she still wants to make sure that the entire team was taken out. And she knows that something might have happened to save them. So she calls in some reinforcements. Let's just put it that way. That is one thing that I do have to spoil for you, too. There's some reinforcements. They get called in. 
And that does not make everybody happy. As a matter of fact, it's going to be a very look-over-your-shoulder type of situation probably this entire final season of Blind Spot. But there's just so many emotional triggers that get hit on in this episode, especially if you're a longtime fan. I mean, if you are a longtime fan of the show, you're going to be on your on the edge. You're probably going to be sobbing a little bit. Make sure you've got the comfort food nearby. You're probably going to need it. Get through this episode. It's going to be a tough one. But what we see in this episode and going forward, I think is going to be... It, you can just tell just from this one episode that we are in for a hell of a final season. And I was so impressed with how this was executed. Martin Garrow and the team has done it again. The cast is one of my favorite casts of the last five years in, in any show that I've watched. I just love this cast so much and, and how they are together. It's just amazing. I, one of the shows that I kind of hate to see it go, but at the same time I understand why you're ending it the way you are now and getting to end on your, on your own terms, especially for a show like this. My goodness, I'll tell you what, that is absolutely going to be a feather in their cap in this particular instance. And I cannot wait to see what happens from here. That's going to do it for my very tap dancey spoiler free review of the blind spot season five premiere. Watch it. Even if you're not a fan of the show yet, catch up and watch this thing. You will not be sorry that you did. I love this show and I will continue to long after it's over. Up next, there is some nerd news to talk about, maybe some updated release dates, trailers, a whole bunch more. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Yo, yo, this is Cam Rush Johnson from the cast of Batwoman, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. In a time where the pause button seems to be being hit for a lot of things, this one might be for a different reason. It's time for nerd news, and here's one that, you got to take with a grain of salt here because you got to consider the source. So Heroic Hollywood has said that Warner Brothers Pictures has halted production on the Supergirl movie that has been talked about for about a year or so now in order to figure out what to do with Superman. Now, first, let's take this from the Supergirl angle, shall we? I'm not saying that I'm not a fan of the character because I am. I'm not saying that Supergirl shouldn't get her own movie at some point, but I don't think that point is right now, especially if we're not moving forward towards a larger universe here like we were before, an accelerated Justice League-type universe that the DC movie universe was doing. Now it doesn't seem like that's going to be the case anymore. There's no need to add Supergirl to this movie mix, and we already have a Supergirl in Melissa Benoist, and she's pretty damn good, so I don't know what the rush would be to get a Supergirl movie out there. It just doesn't seem necessary. And it just is and in a time where you're going to have a hard time being able to shoot movies as it is and get production moving. I'm just not sure that you, that you need to overload things right now. And quite frankly, this is just not a movie that needs to be done at the moment. And I'm all for having more, lead female characters in superhero movies. I just don't think that this is necessarily one that needs to be done right now. I'm not saying don't do it ever. I'm just saying right now, I mean, let the Supergirl TV series run its course. It's already going into what its sixth season. How many more seasons would it have left? So, I mean, if arrow ends with season eight, if you're looking at around the same for Supergirl and maybe sooner, then, you know, you add another year onto that. Maybe you do a Supergirl movie after that, it just doesn't seem like, well, what's the point of rushing into it? And then you go to the Superman angle, and it seems like fans have been kind of more and more wanting Henry Cavill to come back as Superman, and he certainly hasn't given up on the role. We've seen The Rock campaigning for Superman to be in the Black Adam movie, and if that's the case, and that movie's going to, it's supposed to be starting production sooner rather than later, it would be nice if you already had a Superman to be able to put in that movie if you chose to do so. And Henry Cavill, again, is right there. Not to mention, I'm wondering if, because The Witcher was so popular on Netflix, if that makes Warner Brothers go, oh, well, I mean, The Witcher, people know him more from that. Maybe we should keep Henry on as Superman. And quite frankly, 
he's never really been given a true shot to to under different leadership as Superman. I mean, I know Joss Whedon took over with Justice League, but there's still, you know, Zack Snyder influence in there. And whether you're a fan of Zack's or not, I'm not going to go down that road. Lord knows I don't need to do that. But I, I would be nice to see what Henry Cavill could do with the Superman character under different direction, I guess is, is, is what I'm trying to say. So I say you give him another shot. I've, I've always said as somebody who liked man of steel, wasn't perfect, but I liked it. And I've liked Henry Cavill in this role before in most of the movies. I say you give him another shot. I mean, why not? And, and as far as what you're going to do with Superman, put him in the black Adam movie and see what happens. What, what could it hurt? It would make sense given the way that Shazam ended in that little post-credit stinger that they had there. So you, you could do that. You could also, you know, justify it by saying, you know, Shazam can't take on Black Adam on his own. So you might want to throw Superman in there. Even if you threw Superman and Shazam too, that could also happen. You never know. There's also no rush to do another Superman movie because you've got Superman and Lois on the CW as well. And by the way, Tyler Hoken doing a great job playing Clark, Clark Kent and Superman there. So there's no rush to get a Superman movie out there in the next year or two either. Just you you could pump the brakes on these things and like like the report says, you know, take the time to figure out and get it right. So if this is all true, I wouldn't be surprised at all if we see Henry Cavill back in that famous cape and in that blue suit once again. Now will will there be red undies? Who knows? We'll have to wait and find out. And it's amazing what will happen when you start to lose a little bit of money because it was reported on May the 4th be with you that Taika Waititi would be doing would be writing and co would be directing and co-writing a brand new Star Wars movie. This of course was confirmed by starwars.com. We know that he was involved with the Mandalorian last season, you know him for, from Thor Ragnarok and other things, Jojo Rabbit. And now he's going to be teaming up with Christy Wilson Cairns, who was nominated for an Oscar, by the way, for her work on 1917. So, I mean, certainly legitimacy there. That's where the confirmation in the story ends. There's been other reports also that this thing's supposed to be coming out in December of 2022. But I seem to remember a certain story not too long ago about Disney saying, yeah, you know, the future of Star Wars is in television and we're going to take a break from Star Wars movies for a while. I think it's going to be a while before you see Star Wars in theaters again. Well, since, you know, Star Wars movies, whether you like them or not, seem to make a buttload of money. And Disney, whilst they have had a buttload of money, seem to be hemorrhaging quite a bit of that right now. I think that sort of changed the plans here. A little bit and then you get something you get someone excuse me with a name like Taka Waititi and all of a sudden fans are like oh I know him he's funny he's great he he knows he knows a lot of things he made Thor great and he's did a great job on the Mandalorian when he had his chance okay these things are all true they are all true but if we have like what five Star Wars series in development right now for Disney plus you also now have this movie any number of trilogies that may be happening from like the Game of Thrones creators and all these other things and what's on and what's off. It's There's so much Star Wars stuff in the pipeline right now. It's kind of hard keep, to keep track of it all in a time where we were going to try to back away from certain things that had to do with Star Wars. And now we're kind of pushing it up there again. I don't know. It just seems like this could be a, hey, wouldn't it be nice if we had more money? right now and we could recoup some things oh i know let's do a new star wars movie and who knows if this is going to be based on any existing canon if there's going to be something brand new thrown in the mix if this is going to be another one of those prequel type movies like solo was who knows okay so we'll just have to wait and see and and after the comments that were made by josh trank this week were very very interesting about getting involved with with certain projects and certain properties and yeah it's just going to be very interesting to see where this one goes. And speaking, by the way, of Disney+, Plus, they have another series coming, and this one is a Boom Studios 
graphic novel by somebody who's a name that you will know, and that is R.L. Stein. So the release says that Boom Studios and Disney are, are teaming up. Well, I should say 20th Century Fox, which is owned by Disney. 20th Century Fox Television going to be bringing the story just beyond to Disney Plus for an eight-episode series, which is also going to be written and produced by Seth Graham Smith, who's done Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, and even Lego Batman, too, by the way. So so there's that. So there's like a horror comedy thing going on here, which, you know, I, I certainly I don't hate that. Right now, how is it going to look on Disney Plus? I think this will be this is kind of a good match. Actually, there's four volumes of the of, of the Just Beyond graphic novel story. So there's no saying really which one of these will be adapted into the series. Well, you're talking middle grade stuff here as far as readership is concerned. So I don't think you're getting anything too hardcore in the horror realm or anything, especially if you're talking horror comedy as well, because you know that Disney Plus is going to tend to shy away from anything close to R-rated. And it looks like they're going to try and get this thing out in the fall of 2021, which to me seems pretty optimistic, given the circumstances and the way things are right now. I don't, I don't know if they're going to be able to hit that date or not. If you can, hey, you know what, guys? More power to you, because it, just, it seems like something very cool and different. Coming to Disney Plus, so I'm all for it. If you want to do this, I actually have. I will. I will admit freely that I have not had a chance to actually see any of. The, I haven't been able to read. Excuse me, any of these just beyond stories. But hey, now this is my chance to catch up from Boom Studios before the before the show actually starts. So and I, I, you could do the same thing if you haven't yet. Give one of the volumes a shot and see what you think of it. Now here's something that will prove that I am not crazy. And that always makes me happy. There was a there, news came out this week from Sony Pictures Television and NBC that The Blacklist, which is going into its finale, not series finale, next the next season coming up is going to be the final season. But this season's finale was cut short due to the coronavirus. They could not finish filming. They were about halfway done. And now they're going to air a live-action, animation-style, hybrid episode to finish their season. And you might remember me on this show and on our website, downinnerdypodcast.com, saying, why couldn't the Arrowverse series finish their seasons in animation? And I know that there was going to be issues there with unions and contracts and things like that. I'm thinking, okay... Maybe it can't be done, but if anybody would do it, you would think that they would be the ones that would try to do it. And here when the Arrowverse is shortening their seasons, now the Blacklist is going to use what they call graphic novel style animation to finish the 19th episode of their seventh season. And, you know, they released a couple of panels from it, so we're getting stills. The art looks really, really good. I mean, really good. So I have no worries about that. And we don't know if this is going to be like a motion graphic novel type situation. If there's actually going to be animated series elements to this. The episode is, as I, I, as I reached out, is apparently still being worked on. And it's actually going to be airing, if I'm going to track this down really quickly, it's going to be airing on May the 15th at 8 p.m., on NBC. So I mean they've got about they've got a little bit over a week. If you're listening to this on Friday, they've got a week to be able to hash things this thing out and get it done. So but the the point is is they're gonna get it done. They're gonna give their fans that closure to the season and finish out what they written what they had written as their finale. You're gonna get to finish that out and finish the season the way you wanted to and the way you intended to. Now, I know that I talked about last week Batwoman cutting its season short and them saying, you know, our 20th episode actually kind of works really good as a finale. So we're not worried about that at all. I don't know how the Flash's season is going to end this upcoming week, but it is going to end this coming week. They're they're billing this coming episode as the season finale. I haven't heard anything about Supergirl yet as far as when that finale is absolutely going to be 
or not, so there's no confirmation on that. We know that DC's Legends of Tomorrow will get to finish its season because they they had already finished filming, so we know that they'll get to finish their season whenever that rounds. It just seems to me like if they were close, and it seemed like Supergirl was close. I think they said they were a couple days away from completing shooting when everything shut down because of the coronavirus. So if they were close and they could do something similar to this, wouldn't you? If you could, I mean, if even if there were contracts involved, you know, there's certain people that can't work in animation that, or, or doesn't don't have the experience to, but they can work in live action there. You know, they're supposed to be working on these shows. If you, if you pay those people anyway, wouldn't that kind of make it okay? You know, like, well, you know, we're going to do this. We know you're not going to be able to work on the episode, but we'll pay you anyway because, you know, this whole thing, not really your fault, so we'll pay you, but we're going to go ahead and finish this in animation. And by the way, Warner Brothers has one of the best animation departments in-house right there, DC Animation and a lot of other things as well. Warner Brothers Animation is legit. They could do that pretty easily, I would think. Now, I know it would take time. I'm willing to wait. If you want to give me the finale that you intended, I am absolutely willing to wait. So, I mean, I don't think it's a done deal yet for, for Supergirl anyway. We'll just have to wait and see how this all shakes out. Really quickly, I wanted to touch on the trailer for Space Force, which is going to be coming to Netflix here in a couple of weeks. Steve Carell is back, and on May the 29th, the Space Force will be taking off on Netflix. And basically, yeah, it is about the new branch of the military that is being launched by the federal government to protect our you know, interests in space basically is the worst way is the, is the best way to put it. And then you have Steve Carell's character who is basically a four-star general. Who's always wanted to lead their own division of the military had no idea that this was going to be the thing that he was going to lead. And you can only imagine when you've got something brand new and you're talking about space travel too, by the way, the things aren't necessarily going to go as you think they're going to go. And they're not really going to go that smoothly, and you see that in this first trailer where you see one of the rockets blow up and you see people are making making fun of him almost to his face. And it's just interesting to me that there's going to be some, you know, when you first heard about this, whatever your reaction was, my guess is, is this, this series is going to deal with all of the different reactions that surrounded Space Force when we all heard about it, whatever your opinion might be on it. And then, you know, the pressure of actually having to deal with something that's kind of unprecedented. Quite frankly, you see Steve Carell under that kind of pressure. I mean, anything that makes you sing Kokomo in a room by yourself, really, that that's a pressure-packed situation right there. I'm not going to lie. I, I, I kind of i am scared for him right now. But I'm very, very excited to see what's going to be coming up with space for, and then a hell of a cast, too, by the way, for this show. So I cannot wait to see what's going to be coming up on May the 29th from Space Force on Netflix. I cannot wait. That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, we're going to be talking about com- the com- new comic book series, She Kills, by writer and executive producer of Family Guy. That's right. Patrick Megan joins me next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Lou Diamond Phillips from Fox's Prodigal Son, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. You'll probably recognize this name, but you'll also want to check out a great new comic that he has out called She Kills. It's writer and executive producer of of, of Family Guy and writer of She Kills. It's Patrick Megan. Patrick, what's up, man? Hi, how you doing? Great to, great to be on here. Thank you so much for having me. Doing great, man. Appreciate you taking the time. Now, I read that you actually spent 10 years doing research on your work for She Kills. What was your initial motivation for wanting to tell this story? Uh, so, you know, it's a great question. I am kind of an idiot. Uh, when I do my reading, I will I will read something and I'll go, oh, hey, I like that. Now I want to read, you know, three more books about that thing. And then I'll read those three more books and go, oh, that's interesting. I need to read eight more books about that thing. And then, and then it just kind of goes on and on. And before you know, like years have gone by. And uh, in this particular case, the initial book was a uh, book about California history. And uh, I live in California. It's my adopted home. And I just, the more I swallowed down about 
this state, the more I wanted to sort of like keep reading and eventually knew I wanted to write about it because there was just so much that was crazy and weird and wrong about uh, California and about, you know, how California came to be. And so I knew that I wanted to write about it. And so I initially started writing about uh, this guy named Horace Bell, who was this uh, sort of uh, idiot and asshole who came to, I don't know, by the way, if I can swear in your Go podcast. Go ahead, man. Knock yourself okay. out. It's, it's right. free-flowing here. The, the, the okay, gloves good, are good. off. So a uh, total asshole who uh, came to Los Angeles relatively early, like in the uh, 1840s. But then the more I wrote about him, the more my eyes started sort of wandering over towards some of the uh, workers and um, poor people around him who were actually doing something as opposed to this guy who was mainly just sort of like hanging out and telling lies about what he was doing. So that ended up being uh, where I went. I ended up writing a story about uh, a poor person, a worker in Los Angeles, who in that time and place uh, would have been a Native American uh, person. And it was also around that time that I started writing that my daughter, who had been a baby, was not a baby anymore, but rather was a teenager. And that uh, changed uh, my relationship and my wife's relationship to that person and made it a much more sort of complex and, um, and interesting relationship. So I wanted to write about that, too. So I ended up writing about uh, a uh, mother-daughter relationship in Los Angeles in the 1850s, which is a, uh, a weird time to be raising a, um, a teenage girl. So I just sort of started with that relationship at the core and then worked in all the blood and violence and weirdness that I was seeing from my reading in uh, California. And by the time that whole process had played out, about a decade had gone by, and now here I am. I mean... Some people seem rough around the edges, Patrick, but to me, She Kills just seems 100% rough. So how would you kind of describe her to new readers? Well, so she, uh, like I said, she, you know, happens to be a Native American. And this is, you know, very honestly, it's in the middle of, uh, you know, of a genocide. And so, and she's in a place where uh, men outnumber women 10 to 1. So... Um, but she's still alive. She's still there, right? Now, how does she manage to, like, stay alive? How does she manage to protect herself? How does she manage to protect this teenage daughter that she has? Is it by being friendly and kind and um, smooth and sweet to people? Or is it by being rough? Is it by, you know, having a knife and not being afraid to threaten at least to uh, to use it to anybody who crosses her path? Like, she chooses that second route. I can't. I can't blame her for it. I'm not somebody who's going to sit here and uh, and second guess her choices. So, so yeah, she's she's very extra, I suppose. Maybe yeah. uh, my daughter <laughs> would say, but I think she kind of has to be, and um, it's also a function of, you know, how she grew up, and um, I don't know. I think it's organic to who she is. Speaking of how she grew up, and I, I certainly don't want to spoil anything uh, for issue two, but on the flip side, you've got you know whether you want to call her Joaquin or you want to call her Dose is. Up to the mm-hmm. reader, I suppose, and she almost almost couldn't be more the opposite of her mother. So, how do you feel like she gained the perspective on the world that she's gotten given the circumstances? Well, so I mean, I think a lot of that is, you know, honestly, is sort of like youthful rebellion, right? So, if my mom is going, especially as I'm getting into 13 years old, if my mom is going to go around and say everybody's an asshole, then I'm like, oh, well, maybe maybe that guy's not such an asshole. You know, maybe that person doesn't, you know, shouldn't, you know, as soon as die as we look at them, like, you know, that's sort of natural. But mainly what she is, is she's a person who is docile and obedient to her mom because she has to be to survive. And her mom is somebody who, you know, is, uh, you know, obedient to nobody because that's who she has to be to survive. But she's, uh, as this series is beginning, uh, Joaquin Dose is, like I said, she's uh, she's coming into an age where she's starting to maybe want to, um, you know, spread her own wings or do things that her mom might disapprove of or, or just disobey her mom in sort of any way. And this is a bad time in history for somebody, you know, for a 13 year old girl to decide to uh, be um, independent. And um, she kills is a bad person uh, to try and uh, express your independence from. And so that conflict is going to be the thing that drives this whole series. 
So now, even though there's some pretty serious moments in this story, and, and trust me, that's an understatement when you read it, you also find some moments of humor here and there. Sometimes they're very quick, sometimes they're not. Now, was it important for you to kind of be able to do that, and how do you balance that in a story like this? Well, the the second part of the question is probably the hardest question, and I don't really know the right way to balance it. I sort of did the best I could kind of <laughs> as I did, but I thought... You kind of have to, whether you want to or not, because I feel like it's it's real, right? Like, I feel like, you know, in the darkest of moments, people, absurd shit happens, honestly. And so if you write something without, uh, you know, without any of that absurdity, you're going to, um, you're just not going to write anything that feels real. So um, I didn't want, you know, the piece to feel flip. I didn't want the, uh, you know, the piece to feel like it was like it wasn't taking anything seriously. But, you know, there are times and maybe it's even most times where like people are not taking things seriously. Right. Because that's sort of human beings will like, I don't know. I don't know. This is a bad analogy, so I probably shouldn't even say it. But like if somebody uh, like marches into uh, my house tonight, you know, with a shotgun and like holds it to my head and it's going to like blow my brains out. But like if he farts right before he does that, and goes, ah, <laughs> like you, you farted. Right. Uh, it's kind of natural. And right. uh, and, uh, you know, and I, I don't want to live in a world in which we don't occasionally, no matter how bad things go, like, you know, laugh about farts. And I don't think most people do live in that world. And so she kills doesn't either. Very much living in that world is Family Guy, by the way. And we were talking about this off the air. Of course, you've been working on Family Guy forever, right? So first of all, I wanted to ask you, what's it like kind of working on the show during all of this craziness during, during the coronavirus pandemic? What's it kind of been like to kind of keep things together because it seems like animation is one of those things that's actually still able to keep going. Yeah. So, um, so the writers actually finished our most recent writing season, which was season 18, uh, back in, uh, February, uh, or excuse me, actually, this would be very early March. And, um, we started a hiatus then, but the, uh, animators have been working sort of from their own respective homes this whole time and have been continuing the animation process. So occasionally we have had say animatics, which are, you know, very crude kind of black and white, uh, you know, uh, screenings to watch that in the past, maybe we would all regather even while we're on hiatus, like come back into the office or watch and then have a day of, you know, rewriting after it. In this particular case, we're just sort of watching the screenings from our own homes and they'll just sort of send us, you know, a quick time movie of the, you know, of the episode. And then we will get together via zoom and we'll just sort of like rewrite it, you know, distantly. You're right. Animation, you know, could conceivably continue indefinitely, you know, through all of this, which is, I don't know, uh, is, is weird, I guess, but, but good, I guess as well. But, um, but we have not yet started writing the next season. I hope we get started in the next uh, few weeks. Now, when people see your name and they see writer and executive producer, Family Guy, when they're going to, you know, look at something like She Kills, you, you almost feel like people would, going in, expect, okay, this is going to be funny. This is going to be a comedy. Obviously, it's not. Do you do you kind of feel like that's a that's an, that's an unfair level of an expectation from fans? Do you kind of experience that at all? And do you feel like it's almost like kind of being typecast, but as a writer? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. It, it, it would be honestly impossible for me to sit here and like bitch about like, Oh, me being a family guy writer has put some sort of unfair burden on me. Like honestly, family guy has given me so much that, uh, I could never, um, it's maybe it's a big part of, you know, how I got on the down and nerdy podcast is the fact that I happen to be, you know, a family guy writer in addition to be a to, good book too, by the way, I just want to, Oh, well, you're very, it's very, I'm going to end up uh, using that quote, uh, in my you know promotion. So there we go. I'll take so, it. So get, get ready for that. But it's, uh, you know, it's given me, you know, very frankly, like a whole lot of like, you know, privilege, you know, it was just a true thing to say and ability to, um, to do other things on the side, like she kills that like, yeah, are very different. And yeah. So maybe somebody might come into she kills like expecting, you know, more jokes about, um, you know, I don't know, uh, Seinfeld and Mr. Belvedere or something than they end up mm -hmm. getting or Titanic references or whatever. But, uh, then they're going to see that it's something different. And if they dig it, that's fine. And if they don't dig it, that's fine too. But, um, there's just no way in the world that I can sit here and complain about, you know, Family Guy providing some unfair, uh, 
unfair handicap on me. It's been 100% the opposite. Talking to writer Patrick Megan of She Kills, which you can get right now. As a matter of fact, the first issue is available at SheKillsComic.com. We'll get into that here in just a second. Patrick, you've also actually written or done some writing, I should say, for several of the Comedy Central roasts, which I think is super, super interesting. Now, if you could pick anyone to roast right now, who oh my would gosh. you choose and which or which one would be the most fun to write for, do you think? Gosh, I don't, I mean, that's a good question. Like the people who I want to roast are people who wouldn't really be very funny. And I, I honestly would have trouble writing jokes for because like a roast is supposed to be done out of love, right? right. But like you're sitting here right now and I'm like, I don't know, that Stephen Miller guy, like I kind of want bad stuff to happen to him and it would not be out <laughs> of love. So I guess I, I got to rule him out. So I, I'm kind of uh, a, a weird bird in that, like, I'm really into basketball, but I'm especially really into women's basketball. So maybe I'll say Gina Oriema, the uh, coach of the UConn. Wow, Husky. what an interesting but great choice at the same time for anybody who knows who Gina Oriema is. It seems like if you love women's basketball, which I do, and if you don't like UConn, which I don't, like Gina Oriema would be the perfect person to roast. And uh, and I'll, it, it'll probably exist. I'll bet you that'll exist someday. Maybe not on Comedy Central, but somewhere when it happens, I want to write for it. Or at the very least, I just want to watch it. As someone whose alma mater was beaten by Gino, Gino Oriema in a tournament years ago when I was in college, I am not a fan of UConn either. Now, what's your alma mater? Old Dominion. Oh, my God. You guys have uh, Tisha Pinachero. You guys have a yes, great... Uh, that's when I was going like to school. A great lineage. Oh, that's amazing. Yep, yeah, she's one of the all-time greats. She's yeah, a Hall of Famer. Absolutely. And she yeah, yeah. certainly worth the price of admission, I can tell you that. Man, that, man that's a sidebar I didn't expect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay, so it's going to be hard for me to steer back into the comic, but I'm going to do that here. We're All right, how do you back. transition from Tisha Pinachero back to uh, Family Guy? We're uh, going to try our best. I guess we go to try You know, it's funny. In... All right, you know, here's a detour, though. Like, uh, so Family Guy is, um, you know, Family Guy, obviously, like, it uh, it takes a lot of shots at a lot of different sort of people and things, and that's a big part of, you know, of its whole sort of race on Detra is, you know, let's make fun of this, let's make fun of that. And, uh, you know, it, look, there's a uh, another EP on the show named Mark Henneman at one point sort of observed, like almost every cutaway is just sort of blank is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and so, you know, I go along with it and, uh, you know, and it's fun. And like I said, I can't complain about it. But the, the, the few times that I've ever been like, hey, come on, guys, that's not... Is uh, is when uh, somebody has pitched a joke about women's sports, uh, like including the WNBA. That's sort of the few times when I'm like, "Oh, come on, guys, we don't we don't need to." You so, know, so for anybody so that's wondering know. where the line is, that's that's the line. There's the line. <laughs> Honestly, right now, like the line, like for in actuality, the line as it actually exists is probably like anybody who has ever said something nice to Seth MacFarlane, like personally, like at a social engagement seems to. So occasionally Seth hasn't been in the, uh, in the writer's room for a while, but, um, you know, he obviously does so many of the voices. So, you know, very little gets actually spoken on the show unless Seth MacFarlane says it. Right. And so he'll, sometimes come into the writer's room and like, you know, she's pulling a name out of my butt here. Like there's a, something that for some reason takes a shot at, I don't know, Will Sasso or something. He'll be like, Oh, you know, actually I met Will Sasso uh, the other day. He's a very nice man. He said nice things to me, uh, you know, and he says he's a fan of the show. Can we not, can we not take a shot at Will Sasso? And we're like, all right. And then we have to go back. I'm like, okay, who, who hasn't, uh, you know, who hasn't been nice to Seth MacFarlane lately because Will Sasso has. So he now is, gets a free pass. So if you, you know, whatever, are a B-level celebrity, they're afraid of Family Guy taking an unnecessary and uh, artless shot at you. All you got to do is say something nice to Seth MacFarlane. You, you got a free pass. Definitely getting the word out there on that one. So I'm going to so, put yeah, that out so there. Tisha Pinachero, if you're out there and you're listening, <laughs> you have the opportunity to go to a party that Seth MacFarlane also is attending. Get your way over to him and say uh, what a big fan you are and how everyone in the WNBA uh, loves Family Guy and loves him personally. And um, that's going to that's gonna help me out. That's going to help out my case in the writer's room. There you All right, go. Let's, let's get back to whatever we're talking about. And we could do that because want, you want to talk about greatness. You've certainly got great artists that are working on She Kills, not just yeah. for the characters, but for the setting as well. So talk about the great work that's actually being done 
by Gabo and your cover artist who's done an amazing job, Adam Gorham. Yeah, so uh, obviously they're both amazing. Ashley uh, Robinson is the one who sort of helped me to find Gabo, and um, he, you know, if absolutely finds things in every uh, in every page that it just never would have occurred to me to sort of like um, uh, to even think of. In fact, I don't know. There's not something I want to spoil, but I I just was looking at the uh, pencils for. Issue, this one would have been issue uh, 11 uh, yesterday. And I was, he put something in there that was not, I had not written in there. And I felt mad. And I was like, why am I mad? And I realized I'm mad because he thought of it and I did not. Yep. And I'm so upset. With him. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> it was just such a, and, uh, you know, that's when you, that's when you, have found an amazing artist apparently is when you find an artist who can piss you off with his genius. So that's definitely Adam Gorham or uh, Gabo and Adam Gorham, whose covers are, you know, just absolute sorcery. Um, and uh, Taylor Esposito is the letterer and he's just incredible as well. So between, you know, those three and again, Ashley B. Robinson as my editor, it's amazing. And, you know, I have needed every single ounce of, you know, creative craziness that those guys have been able to gift because I am new to this. I've never, you know, been in this world before. I'm a, absolutely consider myself a guest in the world of comic books. And I, I want to do my best to sort of like, you know, not put my feet on the furniture and not, you know, not belch after I eat or wipe my, you know, mouth with the wrong, you know, hand or whatever is the etiquette that I don't know about. The comic books world, right? And um, and also, I don't want to, you know, screw myself up. And every now and then, you know, they will have to say, "Yeah, I know that you wrote this, and I know that you may think that that's a good idea, but that you, it, it that can't happen. You, <laughs> we need to do this instead of that." It's like, ah, oh, thank you, thank you so much for knowing what you do uh, and knowing um, what you're doing, because I for sure shit do not. So I, I've, I gotta ask Patrick with the times that we're living in right now, I, I couldn't help but think about this as I was reading the first couple of issues. Now, do you think that she kills would be for or against social distancing? Uh, I mean, she would be 100% for it, right? She is 100% in favor of uh, everyone stay the fuck away from me and stay <laughs> the fuck away from my daughter. And so she would 100% be in favor of social distancing. Like as long as she can sort of get close enough to, uh, you know, whatever, steal a meal from somebody or, um, uh, you know, I don't know. But generally speaking, you know, she kind of has, there are very few people that she runs across that she doesn't hate. And so, uh, so I think, you know, six feet is the bare minimum. (laughs) I would would say that that's probably true. Yeah, yeah. Now, Patrick, before I let you go, and I had to say this because of something we were talking about earlier. When I was at Comic-Con a couple years ago, and I was, I was coming out of one press room, you know, you run, to the, you run to the restroom whenever you can. I was running to the restroom. I promise I'm going somewhere with this. Okay. I'm, com- I'm coming out the I'm door. I'm with you. I'm coming out the door, and I almost, like two inches away from smacking Seth MacFarlane right in the face with the bathroom door and also running into the bathroom door myself because we were both running into the door. So Ah. tell Seth that I am sorry again and do not kill me in an upcoming episode of Family Guy. (laughs) I will absolutely pass that information along to you. You know, he, uh, I mean, not to take like a lighthearted story and, uh, and take it into a very, very dark place, but you know, he, he almost died on nine 11. So do you know that story? No. Oh, okay. So yeah, he was he was supposed to be on uh, one of the flights that was leaving Boston, and he overslept because he was a young guy and he uh, he you know was irresponsible, and he made it to the airport too late, and um, the plane the plane this was Logan Airport. The plane was actually apparently still at the end of the jetway, but the doors had closed. You know, they closed the doors yeah. mm-hmm. and. Um, and he has said afterwards that, you know, there were, uh, you know, there have been other times because he was so irresponsible that he would argue his way onto the plane. Come on, it's right there. I see mm. it's right there. Come on, open the doors back up. Come on. And for whatever reason, he decided this time, eh, forget it. Wow. You know, I'll catch the next flight whenever that is. And uh, and that 
you know, that laziness and that, uh, you know, that resignation ended up, you know, saving his life and, um, and, uh, you know, sort of changed, changed, really changed my life. So anyway, I guess all all which is to say what you just described is the second biggest near miss that Seth MacFarlane (laughs) has personally endured. Well, and uh, and both of them haunt him to this day, I'm sure. I think the part of him thought it was kind of his fault too, because he did apologize to me and I apologized to him. And then we kind of, you know, we both had to go our separate ways because we were both busy. Sure. But that's that's that is my Seth MacFarlane story. He is a he's a very uh, he's a very polite and very um, sort of non-confrontational person. So uh, even if it was your fault, it is 100 percent within Seth MacFarlane's character to apologize profusely to you and to say, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. That was me. That was, uh, are you OK? So uh, now in his brain, he might be like, oh, that guy's a jerk. But yeah. uh, but he would certainly never say it. So uh, <laughs> but I will. I will definitely pass your uh, your pal- apology along. And you should definitely pass along to anyone that will listen that you should be reading She Kills. Issue 1 available now, as a matter of fact, at SheKillsComic.com. Issue 2 going to be released really soon, though, May the 13th. Read that first issue. Get all the info you need. And make sure you're telling as many people as you can about it with this guy as well. It's writer Patrick Megan. Thank you so much for joining me this week. James, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Such a fun conversation with Patrick Megan had such great insight, not only into what's going on with Family Guy, but the historical aspects, even in a fictional story like She Kills, it's just when you when you read the first issue, it's going to hit you just how crazy things were back then in the very, very early days of California and of Los Angeles. I mean, this was coming you know right after a war. Think of what the world might have been like. Back then, you think things are crazy now. Well, in a different way, of course. But, I mean, this was just, you know, no rules personified back then. And I'm sure, and I've only read the first couple of issues, and and I already know that things are going to escalate quite a bit as things go forward. And, And like Patrick was saying, he was just, you know, looking at art for issue 11. Issue 2 comes out on May the 13th, so they are already deep into the story make sure you get in on it now shekillscomic.com don't miss a second out of it if you're a history buff if you just like great stories if you're ready for one of the more interesting and intense mother-daughter type stories too yeah this is something that you're going to want to check out for sure if you want more information on us you can you can go to down and nerdy podcast.com also follow along on social media at down and nerdy 757 on twitter and on instagram and at down and nerdy on facebook as well. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.